We're continuing uh, this series. Today will be the last sermon in this series on the Lord's Supper. You'll remember two Sundays ago, I su- suggested five directions we could look uh, when we come to take the Lord's Supper that would kind of keep us focused on God's intention. I said, look within long enough to see that you desperately need Jesus and see all the spiritual grunk there uh, that is within. And then look back at the cross as you come to the table. Um, It reminds us of his death. I'll talk about that specifically today. Then look up at Jesus who's there open arms saying, come to me all you that labor and are heavy laden. Then look forward to the return of Christ and, and the eternal wedding banquet of the Lamb. And then look around Look around at the others in in the body of Christ uh, who are there with you and are on the same level ground as you as they come uh, to partake of Jesus Christ. I expanded that fifth point, the look around point, last Sunday uh, in the message, What Went Wrong at Corinth? And I said, well, what went wrong at Corinth was not a matter of profession, but practice. Not not a matter of creed, but a matter of conduct, that they said the right things to Jesus and and that they embraced Jesus, but then they lived with one another like the gospel made no difference at all. And and if you read in the text, you'll see that God was upset with that, and many of them were weak and ill, and some, in fact, had died, that that contradiction uh, to the gospel. And so today I want to read the same text... Um, and talk about word and sacrament. How do the word of God uh, and the sacraments of God um, relate together a little bit? Let me remind you that in the Reformed tradition, uh, we speak of the means of grace. How can we expect God to mediate grace to us, to bring grace to us? If I need the grace of God, where will I find it? We say what? The Word, the sacraments, and prayer. Okay, the Word, the sacraments, and prayer. And in the Presbyterian Reformed tradition, I think we rightly say that to receive grace from any of those, the Word, sacraments, or prayer, we must have faith. We must believe the Word to be the Word of God. We must come to the table in faith. We must pray in faith. And so particularly I want to look at the relationship between word and sacrament because using a, an, an illustration, you know, if you were ever or are into boxing, uh, people will talk about a boxer having a one-two punch, you know, a, a, a left jab followed by a right uppercut or something uh, to, 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 to accomplish a goal. And I think word and sacrament are God's one-two punch to kind of beat the gospel into our lives. And I'll give you a quote from Luther uh, that I kind of lifted that from. It's not original with me, though Luther wasn't into boxing. Although if there's anybody in church history that might have been into boxing, it would have been Luther, right? I mean, he was a, he was a character uh, of, of the first order. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll read this text and uh, have a go at it, all right? Father, um, thank you for uh, your mercy to us that you've given us a word, a reliable word, um, a true word, an infallible word, um, a, a trustworthy word that reveals you to us primarily and reveals to us who we really are. We play games with ourselves. We talked about that earlier. 
but it tells us who we are and it reveals the good news to us. And I pray we would see that this morning as we read uh, this uh, passage and think about it together. Lord, uh, this word we believe and is inspired by the Holy Spirit and we pray that as we reverently and diligently give attention to it, that the spirit that inspired it would illuminate our minds to understand it, to receive it, to apply it. And Father, as I always pray, use a wretchedly sinful, crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. For We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 at verse 17, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating... Each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said... This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers will fade, but this is God's word. It won't fade. It will abide forever and forever. Like many of you, Uh, From time to time, I have been uh, to the graves of my parents. Uh, If you drive out to Highway 51 in Brookhaven, Mississippi, and go south a mile or two and turn in uh, to the cemetery there, uh, my mom and dad are buried. And I've been there since they were both placed there. And there are a lot of memories, a lot of memories. Same when I go to the the graves of Sally's mom and dad in, in Jackson, Mississippi. And, and I remember things about them and things that we did with them. And, and you know, the truth of the matter is we all want to be remembered. But the real question is, is how? How do I want to be remembered? How do you want to be remembered? Um, 
God wants us to remember Him, and in particular, He wants us to remember His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, twice in this uh, text, in verses 24 and then in, again in verse 25, He says, do this in remembrance of me. I mean, it's just screaming out, don't forget me, okay? And so I want us to uh, explore this, this thought under several headings this morning that I'll give you as we go along. Uh, and the first heading is don't forget. Don't forget. Uh, many of you will remember as school children, I think I can remember that far back, and my mother would say, don't forget your lunch, don't forget your homework. Uh, don't forget your gloves or your scarf if it was cold. Yes, even in southwest Mississippi it got cold. Uh, or you're going to a party and somebody will say, don't forget the gift. Or somebody will say, don't forget to tell them that we love them. And God frequently tells his people, don't forget. Don't forget. Don't forget me. Don't forget what I've done for you. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, when, when God's people are poised outside uh, the promised land and they're going to go across the river Jordan and God is going to take them into a land called a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, Deuteronomy means a second giving of the law. Deutero, second nomos, law, the second giving of the law. God parks his people there east of the Jordan and kind of goes through a how we got up to this point uh, um, with them, you know? And he says, well, you know, you went down to Egypt, nobody. You came out 600,000. I fed you manna in the wilderness. I gave you water from the rock. I gave you a quail to eat and everything. Uh, your sandals didn't wear out the whole time you were on the journey. You ought to think about that for a while, okay? I just went shoe shopping the other day. My shoes don't last 40 years in the desert. Do yours? I mean, think about that, okay? And so that all these various things, God is reminding them how wonderfully good He has been to them. And in Deuteronomy 8, He says this, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God. And we would say, how could they have forgotten God? They went through the Dead Sea, the Red Sea on dry land. They saw miracles, rocks splitting open, water coming out. And God is having to say, take care lest you forget. And we, from our New Testament perspective, say, well, those people were really sinful, weren't they? I mean, let, we look down our New Testament noses at them and we think, what in the world? How could they have forgotten God with all He had done for them? Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full... He's talking about what will happen after they go in the promised land. After you've gone in and you've eaten and are full, you've built good houses, you've lived in them, when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up pride, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. That's Deuteronomy 8. Here's Deuteronomy 4. Take care 
and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God. His covenant promises to be a God to them. And you remember, Jesus said, This supper is the new covenant in my blood. Be, take care, lest you forget this covenant relationship you've got with me. Deuteronomy 6. Then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then in Deuteronomy 16, we're not going to do a sword drill and turn to all these, you know. But in Deuteronomy 16, he's giving the Passover, and the Passover symbolized and was supposed to remind them of when God in Exodus 12 passed over the Israelites in judgment when he went through Egypt and killed the firstborn of man and beast. And so they had this sacrament, this ceremony, this symbol that would remind them of God's deliverance of them from bondage. And we have a sacrament that reminds us of God's deliverance from our bondage to sin. We read part of Psalm 103 earlier and uh, the gospel response to our prayer of confession Earlier in that psalm, it says, forget not all his benefits. And here in Psalm, uh, I mean in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Now, friend, rather than you get all huffed up and puffy at the suggestion I'm making that you might forget about Jesus with some regularity, I want to confess to you that I forget about Jesus with some regularity. And my strong hunch is that you do too that you go days without thinking about Jesus. And this, is, this shoe fits our foot just like it fits theirs. It's so easy to neglect God. It's a te bad testimony about us. So secondly, I want to consider why do we need to be told not to forget God? Sally accuses me very frequently of saying the obvious. <laughs> I think it's something engineers do, but that's, that's for another time. Uh, well, we tend to forget God and our blessings is coming from Him, like we forget birthdays and forget anniversaries and things like that. But why do we tend to forget? A lot of ways I could handle that maybe, but here's the way I want to do it, okay? Distractions. Distractions. I mean, why did you forget the gift when you ran out to the birthday party? You got distracted by something else, right? You know? Why did you forget your homework when you were running out to class? Well, you you got distracted. Why do you forget Jesus? You get distracted. By what? Well, in Deuteronomy 8, God said it's going to be possessions and pride. You're going to get into that promised land and you're going to flourish and you're going to think, we're pretty good people, you know? Pretty talented, pretty smart. We work real hard. We're the one that's got this wealth for us. I mean, that's, that's the Carter translation of what you find in Deuteronomy 8. Possessions and pride. A feeling of self-sufficiency is not very far away from that. Idolatry causes us to forget God. An idol is just a God substitute. 
And idols cause us to forget the one true God. Um, what are your idols? Are money and success idols for you? Uh, they will just keep you from thinking about God. Oh, you may pray that God helps you make money and helps you be successful, but are you after God in pursuing those things? I think we're very distracted in the United States of America. Thrills and pre- pleasures. Thrills and pleasures. I'm pr- pursuing thrills and pl- pleasure, ple- pleasures. You don't know how many times people have told me over the years, well, Pastor, I won't be there Sunday because... And you fill in the blank, thrills and pleasures. Thrills and pleasures. It's always pretty close to that. What causes you to forget God? You need to address that. You need to think about that. Because what causes me to forget God and what causes you to forget God may not be exactly the same. I'm being suggestive, not exhaustive. Okay. Thirdly, What do Christians need to remember? Wrong question exactly, but maybe better who are Christians supposed to remember. And it says, do this in remembrance of me. And so it's a person. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember him. Now, it's not just creeds. Let me be clear here. Creeds tell us a lot about who he is. Creeds tell us a lot about what he's done. And those things we need to remember as we remember him. But you can recite a creed and not remember a person. And it's not primarily my sins as I come to this table that I need to remember. Uh, The Lord's Supper, not a time for penance. It's not a time for some kind of Protestant flagellation. It's not a time for bargaining with God. God, I promise you, if, if you'll forgive me again, I'll never... Fill in the blank. It's not, that's not what the Lord's Supper is about. It's remembering Him. It's to remember His body and His blood. To remember the good news of the gospel. To remember, like Israel's deliverance from their bondage in Exodus, to remember our deliverance from our bondage to sin. I find Christians usually have a narrowed view of our deliverance. Um, and, and again, I'm speaking from a, a few decades of pastoral ex- experience, but mostly people think in terms of deliverance from the penalty of sin. If I believe in Jesus, I won't go to hell. And that's true. But that's not the whole story because God promises deliverance from the power of sin and ultimately from the presence of sin. We believe in progressive sanctification now, which is finalized when we go to be with Jesus and when he comes again. So our deliverance is from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, the presence of sin, from that bondage. We remember his death as our sinless substitute. I was talking to a friend Friday, and he said, well, there's a PCA minister that is unwilling to assert the sinlessness of Jesus Christ and his presbytery is thinking about excommunicating him. And I said, a PCA minister that is saying, I won't affirm the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. That affects everything. Because the gospel is that God is angry with the wicked all the day and he promises wrath to the unrepentant. 
And that in the gospel, Jesus took the wrath of God, the awesomely holy God, that my sins deserve and that the sins of all these people deserve. And and if Jesus is not a sinless substitute, he's not an acceptable substitute to a holy father. And so then the gospel is going to come something like, well, he came to show us love. Well, yeah, yeah. But that's an offshoot of the main thing. That's an offshoot of the main thing. Why was his death necessary? Remember he prayed, Father, if we can do this some other way, let's do it. That was in his high priestly prayer just in, in Gethsemane. If we can do this another way, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Why could it not be done another way? The holiness of God, the wrath of God, the Son of God, the only substitute because he was sinless, because he was God in the flesh, because he substituted for his people. It resulted in forgiveness and won us union with Christ and with one another. We're to remember that we're loved by him past and present and future. And why do we need to remember him this way? Well, it glorifies him and it elicits from us thanksgiving and sacrifice. Think of Memorial Day. Uh, Think of Memorial Day. What is Memorial Day? Well, at Memorial Day, we remember our war dead. Why do we remember our war dead? Well, to honor their sacrifice with a view to stirring in us and others similar sacrifice when and if it's necessary, right? I mean, Memorial Day honors their sacrifice and stirs within us a desire to make a similar sacrifice if and when it's necessary. In remembering Jesus' death, we similarly honor His sacrifice and it lets us know that as a result, there's no sacrifice for him that is too great. Tim Keller tells the story of talking to a a lady who came into a... He used to have discussion groups after he preached, and this lady came, and, and, and he had preached on the fact that it was all of grace, that salvation was all of grace, and that she, he, nobody contributes anything to their own salvation. And, and this lady said at one point, well, if it's all of grace, there's nothing he can't ask of me. And that's right, <laughs> you see. If it's all of grace, if I believe it's all of grace and has nothing to do with my ethnicity or money or education or whatever we might throw in in a Christ plus gospel, there's nothing he might ask of me. It like a Memorial Day. We remember his death and We are encouraged to make similar sacrifice if and when necessary. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to put your life on the altar to devote yourself to God as a living sacrifice, to use the words of Romans 1? Fourthly, how are we to remember Christ? Well, um... The means are the Word of God read and proclaimed and the sacraments biblically administered. Um, Where do we find uh, 
knowledge of Christ, primarily in the Scriptures, right? The Word of God tells us about Christ. The Word of God tells us about the Gospel. But the sacrament shows it to us kind of in a picture. His body broken, his blood shed. Now, what's the relationship between word and sacrament? And I think there's a lot of confusion about that, uh, not just in the PCA, but kind of out there, you might say. Um, the words of the Bible are obviously the main thing, right? I mean, if we didn't have the Bible, we, we wouldn't even know we were supposed to have a Lord's Supper, right? And we wouldn't have thought it up. And, and, and the words reveal the good news. They tell us about the sacrament. It pictures the good news. But there are times when we need to be reminded of the words. Um, there are times when we need to be reminded of the words. I said there's a primacy to the word. That's, that's true in the Presbyterian Reformed tradition. Um, but sometimes there's a reminder or a testimony to the truthfulness of the words. Um, in a court, in a court, there's an oath taken and then testimony is given. And the oath is an is a, a authentication, a testifying that the words I'm about to speak are true and faithful. And we find this word and oath pattern in the scriptures themselves. In Hebrews chapter 6, uh, in verses 16 to 18, um, we find these words. Um, and if you've got a Bible, uh, follow along. I think it's easier to follow it looking uh, at it than just hearing it. But God is, uh, on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer is reminding about this relationship between God's words and God's oaths. It said, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and all the, in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable nature of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So he spoke words and then guaranteed these words with an oath. At a wedding... I think I used this illustration once before, but some of you weren't here and some of you don't remember, so I'll do it again. July 22nd, 1972, Sally Hogan made vows to me that in a nutshell would be, she would be a biblical wife to me, and she gave me a covenant, covenant sign, a ring, a token to remind me of the words. To remind me of the words. The ring reminds me of the words. As I said earlier, it's not a, like a, a tag in a cow's ear. This belongs to me. I think people are very confused about that because of their high school experience. When a, when a guy gives a girl his class ring, it's kind of like, she's mine. Uh, but that's not what a ring is in a wedding. It's a reminder of words. It's a covenant sign. It's a covenant symbol. It's a token. With this ring, I thee wed. In token and in pledge of my constant faith and abiding love. It's a token. It's a pledge. Now, if you turn to the Oxford English Dictionary and look up the word token, you'll find 
these things, all relevant to the point I'm trying to make. A token is something that serves to indicate a fact, an event, an object, or a feeling. It's a sign or a symbol. Also this, something given as a proof of a fact or statement, an evidence. Thirdly, a word or material object employed to authenticate a person, a message, or a communication. What is this? It's God's token. It's God's authentication. It's God's reminder. It's God's oath to the truthfulness of the gospel. The word is primary. There's no doubt about it. The sacraments depend on the word, and in the theologies you will hear language like word is primary, sacrament is secondary, but they say it this way, the sacrament is the word made visible. The gospel word. The sacrament is the gospel word made visible. It doesn't make the sacrament useless. It doesn't make the sacrament unimportant to it especially to forgetful people. Now, in the Presbyterian Reformed tradition, there's always preaching and teaching of the gospel prior to partaking of the sacrament. Just like in a wedding, there are vows and then rings. I always thought when a couple came to me uh, for premarital counseling uh, prior to a service, and they all had this is our wedding kind of thought, and that somebody was going to say, we want to do the rings first. And I had already decided I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm not going to do that because the, you, 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 the, it symbolizes nothing until the words have been given, until the deed has been promised. Same thing here. I mean, if Jesus didn't die on the cross, this means nothing. If he didn't die as a sinless substitute, if he didn't take the wrath of God for sinners, this means nothing. And, and there are some places, I don't know if you've ever heard these words, there are some places you'll hear people, uh, these are generally uh, churches not like this one where they have infrequent communion. They'll say something like, this, now we come to the most solemn and sacred part of the service. And to me, there's an unhealthy mysticism in that. It is a mystery, but mysticism is a different thing. This can't be more solid and sacred than reading the scriptures. Like what Monty read today, I think, right? You read? Yeah. It's the sacrament's not more solemn than reading the gospel word. No. Or preaching the gospel word. Fifthly, why are we to remember Christ? It's commanded. It's glorifying. It's good for us because it elicits thanksgiving and joyful sacrificial service. To whom do we proclaim the Lord's death? Do this in remembrance of me. And when you do, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. To, who do we proclaim the Lord's death to? Ourselves. Jerry Bridges says, we need to preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel to ourselves every day. We proclaim the gospel to one another. We proclaim the gospel to a watching world. If a non-believer comes into the service and they see us doing this, it, there's a sense in which we're proclaiming the gospel in the sacrament. You can't see my faith. I can't see your faith. But we demonstrate our faith when we come to the table and say, I need Jesus. 
Now, Luther, in his commentary on Galatians. Here I must take counsel of the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel which teaches me not what I ought to do, for that is the proper office of the law, but what Christ Jesus, the Son of God, has done for me, to wit that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel wills me to receive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine in which the knowledge of all good consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article, the gospel, well, teach it to ourselves, and beat it into their heads continually. With what do we beat the gospel into our heads? Word and sacrament. Word and sacrament. That's God's one-two punch to beat it into our heads. I mentioned Memorial Day earlier in this message, this once per per year remembrance of our war dead, to honor them, to elicit sacrifice from us. And I'm suggesting, of course, that the Lord's uh, Lord's Supper is a Memorial Day of sorts, and Jesus is a much better person to remember. So the Lord's Supper is, listen, not a waste of time. It's not a needless nuisance. It's not an unnecessary delay to get out of worship and beat the Baptist to the restaurant if you're going to one. It's not that. I've had people tell me that. Could could we just kind of eliminate the Lord's Supper? You know, we could get there quicker if you do that. You can imagine what I thought of that. Anyway, this is God's commanded wisdom. This is God's commanded wisdom. In His love, He gave us this because we need it so as to not forget His death and our release from bondage. We need it for our own joy and for the glory of His Son. So when you come, when you come in faith, when you come to remember Christ's death, when you come to feast upon Jesus, you come and you hear Him say to you, I'm yours, you're forgiven, you're mine, I love you. And I say to him again, I'm yours, you're mine, I love you. I will joyfully obey and serve you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your wisdom. Uh, Thank you for realizing that we would be such forgetful people. Thank you for giving us this sacrament that you have instituted so that we would be reminded weekly that we deserve wrath and you took it. So we would be reminded weekly that we're supposed to serve you and not ourselves. Lord, as we come to this table May we come understanding in faith. May we go forth in joy, the joy of those who've been freed from bondage, just like the Israelites did when they came out of Egypt. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.